chapter three today of our, in the final chapter for now, of our Old Testament optimization series. All we're trying to do is give you some ways to understand and get more out of both Testaments. And the first two weeks, chapters one and two, we really focused on finding Jesus in the Old Testament, that Christ is the theme of every chapter, every foreshadowing. There's Christophanies, there's biblical imagery, there's prophecies, and we uh, basically covered how to find those things when you're reading the Old Testament. Today, I'm going to not just uh, talk about Christ in the Old Testament, but just the whole idea that the New Testament writers, uh, all the apostles wrote from the Old Testament, and they were writing to tell us what the Old Testament meant and is fulfilled in the New Testament. And so we're going to start with uh, Paul's comment in Romans 15:4, when he says, for whatever was written in earlier times, he's talking about in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, was written for our instruction, uh, ESV says learning, so that through perseverance, ESV and New King James say endurance or patience were per, instead of perseverance. So perseverance, endurance, patience, and the encouragement or comfort, New King James, of the scripture, graphe, we might have hope. So whatever was written in earlier time was written for our learning so that through patient, enduring perseverance, we might have comfort uh, in the scriptures and therefore have hope. If you don't have the Old Testament, as John actually did very well on the Sunday before Christmas and our Christmas Eve ser service of basically illustrating how we can believe and have hope in the Christ uh, that comes to us at Advent because of all that was fulfilled in, in, the, in, in the promises of God in the Old Testament, to have hope, you need to see the direction of the whole Bible. And you need to see the direction is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That God uh, has a plan for redeeming and restoring the earth to his original intention. And he is, is restoring all things in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11, I just have some excerpts here. But in those passages, basically Paul is just taking Romans 15, 4 and expanding on it giving us more detail. So let's look, catch some highlights from Romans, or 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, it's kind of interesting, there are seven times, six that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant or unaware. Uh, Peter uses that phrase once, and if you take those seven subjects that they're talking about in the New Testament, they amount to the subjects that New Testament Christians are the most ignorant of in our day today. It's kind of amazing. Like if you take the seven statements that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of those things, and you just assume that new t modern people are ignorant of them, that would be a great way to understand the church in our day. So this is one of his seven. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Uh, I've been enjoying fellowshipping with Joel because he's from a Pentecostal tradition, and in Pentecostal tradition, you call one another brothers and sisters. And uh, Paul, in the New Testament, they, they, they didn't just have some see you on Sunday relationship. They had relationships that really were family. So he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, family, community, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now these things took place as examples. Now another uh, translation of that word examples could be patterns or models. These things took place as patterns for us that we might not, might not desire or crave or lust after evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, as a pattern, but they were written down for our learning, our instruction, on whom the end of the ages have come. And uh, what I do there, when you see that ESV, NASB, New King, King James, all I'm saying is I made, I, I gave you a composite of those three translations and whichever one I list first is the one I took it from and then in the brackets are the other two. Uh, alternate, whenever they have an alternative word that's, that it seems important. So that kind of a clue to how to, how to read what I'm, now, what he's saying here, I have points A and B, what he's saying here uh, is that the earlier scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today, were written for our example, for our pattern. Uh, you can't know a pattern that you haven't studied. You know, in industry, you uh, in engineering and so forth, you spend the bulk of the time, money, research, and effort goes into creating the model. Really, if you understand what we're trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship, is we are trying to swim against the tide. Started a good book that John recommended to me today about, what was it called again? The primary on worship and reformation and the introduction in the first chapter he kind of des describes the bankruptcy of the evangelical world today and uh how worldly it is how uh etc confused ex and uh, does a great job very, very bright guy much brighter than me douglas wilson um in any case um this pattern uh he's talking about it in two ways First, he's saying it, it's contained in the historical narrative uh, that is the story of Israel that is, that's actually lived out in time-space events, God's intervention in creating a people for himself. And that that, is, that historical narrative, Israel, is replaced in, in the New Testament by the church. And that Matthew 24 and well, Matthew in general, the whole book, makes that abundantly clear. But God's intention has always been to have a people for himself, and we are grafted into the root of Israel, and the entire period from the birth of Christ to 70 AD is a transitional period that the New Testament calls the end of the age, whereby God is taking the kingdom away from Israel, Matthew 21, and giving it to the, a nation that will produce the fruit of it, hopefully the church. But even in our day, that sifting goes on. God is always taking the kingdom away, and religion continues, building continues, but the kingdom doesn't continue to those who don't produce the fruit of it. And so the, the whole Bible is a historical narrative to warn us to stay faithful to Yahweh, to be in love with him, to be intimate with him, and that that intimacy must 
be expressed through our lifestyle. It must be, the, theology must become incarnational. We must live that which he's called us to. If we don't bear fruit, we're taken away as a branch, uh, John 15. If we do bear fruit, we're pruned that we might bear more fruit. But fruit is required. What we're, you know, what is called radical Christianity today is actually just getting back to real Christianity. It probably shouldn't be called real as radical as much as getting back to authentic versus false. Uh, that book that we use uh, today's gospel, authentic or synthetic, uh, you might call that radical or compromised. Uh, he's addressing issues in 1963 and 64 that are 10 times worse today than when he wrote that book. Now, the other way that he's talking about uh, the 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 uh, Jewish scriptures being an example or a pattern for us is by the imagery they contain. And the imagery is continuous from Genesis to Revelation. So you can't possibly understand a single book of the New Testament, not a single chapter, unless you understand the Old Testament. Because the, the, the metaphors and the word pictures and the imagery and the symbolism start in the fountainhead of all symbolism is given to us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. All the major symbolic messages of the Bible are in those three chapters. And they just continue to ebb and bob and weave and flow and, and be developed throughout the rest of the scripture. So let's look at seven ways he mentions symbols in just this little passage. He says, number one, uh, that I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers, what that's a major biblical theme, the patriarchs, our fathers. And so in a way there are, we have a kind of, we were born to a, to a reprobate father, the, the first Adam, and we were deemed by God, the father through our, through our elder brother, the second Adam, and we are grafted into the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham believed in Christ before Abraham was I am, John 8. Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't saved by works. He was saved by faith that resulted in works, as James 2 makes clear. So the, the theme of fathers uh, can, includes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then it continues through Moses and Joshua. Uh, it continues through the judges, through Samuel, uh, the, uh, as the as the fountainhead of the prophets, uh, through David. Uh, uh, there's always the false kinds of kings like Saul and many of the reprobate kings. Uh, the you know examples of bad fathers, and uh, and fatherhood is is a major biblical theme that continues on to the apostles are our fathers. Um, I'm going to embarrass John a little bit, but, uh, I think it was in first grade or so he was going to East Dayton Christian school and they, oh, Temple Christian wasn't okay. And they made him write a little thing about what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I, when I grow up, I want to be a leasing. I want to do leasing. It didn't even make grammatical sense how he wrote it. Well, of course he was in like first grade or something, but, um, 
But really, what was kind of interesting is I was doing equipment leasing at the time, and I don't think he had any idea what that was. What he was saying is, I want to be like my father. And every born-again Christian has a passion, which scares the hell out of me for our present church and our present age, is so little passion, so much willingness to let this or that addiction to this or that bad food, this or that bad whatever, you, you know, furthering time away with video games, oh, wasting time. On this. There, I see very little passion sometimes to be like my father. Did you not know I had to be about the affairs of my father? Jesus said to his parents, and if you think, well, I'm just 26 or I'm just 32, and it was, which is the common excuse of our day and age, uh, you know, there's lots of times to quit to grow up and quit being a jerk off and playing video games all the time and screwing up my life. But Jesus was 12 when he said that. And he's the pattern. He's the model. And I'm not trying to preach ungrace. I'm trying to say, hey, God, cry out to God, give birth in me, make the new birth that's happened in me become such a thing that it becomes a passion in me to study, to be disciplined, to grow, to make a difference, to be fruitful, that I have to be about my father's business. A Christian by definition, is someone who's contrary to this culture and this world and not compromised with the idols of materialism and comfort and so forth, and who is radical. A Christian is wants to change things. Uh, so this whole idea of fathers goes through the apostles. Uh, very few people, if I even said the word the church fathers or the Antinocene fathers or the doctors of the church, would probably even know what I mean today in evangelicalism. But those happen to be the great authors of the church after the apostles, before the Council of Nicaea. And then there's the Nicene fathers and the post-Nicene fathers. And you can read all their writings in a set of books about this size that I once had. And now I just have it on the internet. But uh, um, that takes up much less shelf space. But you know what? There was guys like Polycarp and John of Chrysostom. And I can't say that I've read all their writings, but I can say that I've understood enough of their writings to understand why they're important. Because they'll help deliver you from the contemporary Christianity that we think is so real and is so confused and compromised. Then he talks about the cloud. I can't preach every one of these points that much, I probably. Uh, I hope, and by the way, the, and I should continue on through, If not only should you know a little bit about the church doctors of the faith and so forth, know something about the reformers. I don't care that you've read all the works of Luther, but I hope to God you've at least watched 50 times the, the movie on Luther. It's a great movie. I've watched it more than 100 times probably. But uh, read, a, read a little. Of, have you ever read the 95 Thesis? Have you ever understood what the church, why did he write a book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church? A great title for today. Um, you know, 
what were the reformers trying to do? They were trying to get back to the to the apostles and the Antonician fathers. Calvin, John Knox, do we know even know who these people are? John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, to bring it over across the pond to the continent. Uh, so, uh, fathers, you know, the fathers of the faith, I, if I waste all my time on this subject, I, it's probably worth it. Honestly, I want you to know something. I try to meet with as many of you and meet your needs and, and have Bible studies and all that as I can. But I have something that directs my life that's even greater. I feel like I have a great obligation to these fathers who invested in the faith. You know, I stand on the backs, as you do, of giants. Men who I, I would hope to meet someday in heaven. And I don't worship them nor pray to them, but I do, uh, I do honor them. And I do thank God for the grace that they found to set an example for us. And I use their teachings especially to help me not be trapped by this abhorrent uh, kind of crazy teaching today that's just, you know, commercial and profitable. And, you know, if, if you want to really get sick, go to a Christian bookstore sometime. You'll, if you don't come out crying, I don't know how you could, if, if Christ is in your heart. It's, it's so sad. It, it's crazy. We've turned Jesus into, a, oh, do you know that Jesus paraphernalia has become an over $4 billion industry? Wow. By the way, I mentioned the Pentecostal pioneers there. I understand that Pentecostalism was f founded on and didn't remove itself from as it should have, uh, the contemporary evangelical theology that it was born out of. However, and it didn't go back and find the faith of the ancient church and the fathers as it should. The Holy Spirit was given to lead us and guide us into all the truth. Pentecostals as a whole have not taken their that experience where the Lord intends it to go. Nevertheless, in an age of unbelief, to stand for the power of the Holy Spirit is a hugely important uh, goal of spiritual fatherhood. The average Christian today has had not much encounter with the power of God. And I submit to you that if, the, if you haven't had powerful encounters in God's presence that have broken your spirit, that have made you weep, that have given you a compassion for the loss that, that is so, so deep that you can hardly stand it. I had one of the, I really enjoy having Logan live with us. He's so helpful. It's unbelievable. And, you know, we were sitting on the back porch before it got so terribly cold. <laughs> it was a little warmer back then. And he's telling me about how he's crying over the lost and all this, and it's kind of this new experience for him. Well, it's because he's really coming to Christ. <laughs> and that's just part of it. And you, he's, he was like so burdened for how, you know, the, the, the kids at Wright, Wright Brothers and, 
et cetera, et cetera. Well, I would, I hope that we all have that. Most of us spend 80 or 90% of our time in our own concerns and worries in our heart. Who is your heart breaking for? I submit if you know Christ, your heart will regularly break in his presence. And I submit that you should have desires to see healing and casting out of demons and uh, et cetera. Uh, Stephen Leopold called me yesterday. He's uh, not here today. But to see the transformation from when Nathan first led him out of uh, total spiritual unreality, BS Christianity into a real encounter with the gospel and humility and so forth, and then to have been here when he was on the floor and he, he, he had to get demons cast out of him in order to get baptized in the spirit because he had so much anger and, un, and unforgiveness and he was such an abuse. He, you know, he had lost two wives over how abusive he was and so forth. And to see his gentleness now and his love now and the genuine growth in God, I want to be like that. When I hang out with Stephen Leopold, which is pretty much twice a week, we go walking together and he helps me chop up onions and stuff. I want to be like him more because he's encountering the power of God. And he's, he's changing in a way that, that you can't change by, by self-effort disciplines. Now, it's not that he's not reading the word. And before he ever came to his first Friday night, Nathan had, uh, was the first person I ever couldn't believe when he walked in. He said, yeah, I've listened to about 30 of your podcasts. I'm like, what is wrong with you? No. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, like Victor Tenbrick used to say, you're deceived in the right d direction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew Larry would like that one. Um, getting on to the cloud. The cloud is, a, it, what he's saying here is the cloud is a theme throughout the whole Bible. We first see the cloud in Genesis 1 and in, then Genesis and Noah and the rainbow is in the cloud, remember? I have a whole bunch of scriptures listed here. I wish I could I could turn to some of them. I don't really have time, but look at that three-line list of scriptures. And uh, what I really want to especially point to is in Exodus, when Moses made everything according to the pattern, when they dedicated the tabernacle, and Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, makes it very clear that we have become the tabernacle, the temple. When it was made according to the pattern, instead of his way and man's way, and I got a better idea of Christianity, when they got back to the pattern, when they made it according to the pattern, when they dedicated it to God, the Spirit of God filled it so deep that the cloud of glory filled the temple, and the priest couldn't minister. And we have a better covenant. Now, I like Friday Night Fellowship, but I pray to God that someday we'll have the kind of visitation where we prepare on Thursday nights for Friday Night Fellowship, and we stay home on Saturday nights and spend time with God, although I was at Wright State Tunnels till 1030 last night with my wife walking the tunnels, 18 times up the steps. It was, it was good. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I, I pray to God that we'll come with expectations that we're not just going to sing a few songs, but the glory of God is going to fall and people are going to be on their face and repenting and being dealt with. We live in a better covenant. And when they dedicated the temple, I think I have it listed there as 1 Kings 8. And then, of course, there's a version of it in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 5 or something like that. 
Um, it's in the list there. The same thing happened. The glory of God filled so much that the priest couldn't stand to minister. Wow. I, I pray, and I've been in meetings where the glory of God fell so much that everyone could just kind of say, wow, <laughs> awesome, and holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Isaiah 6. Uh, the cloud, that theme goes through, and then it's if, if, if you don't know that theme, then when you get to Matthew 17, and a cloud envelops them at the Mount of Transfiguration, and God speaks out of the glory of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It, you, it will just be words on a page. It won't move you to tears like it should. You know, Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets, and he's the fulfillment of it all. And beginning from that time, he began to tell the disciples that the Christ must suffer because he knew that would be the hardest obstacle for them to get over. So in the very first time he tells them, uh, which actually was in the previous chapter, uh, so I, I misspoke, That's, he, it was just before then that he began to tell them, uh, anyway, after the revelation, thou art the Christ, and so forth, and Peter says, get thee behind me. Or he says, Lord, this won't ever happen to me or you. And, and Jesus says, get behind me. In other words, we have such a hard time understanding suffering. I had a great call this week from a, a guy who was <clears throat> reading the verses in Colossians that say, uh, talk about filling up the measure of Christ's sufferings and I directed them to a sermon that Jason had done on that topic uh, a few years ago. And uh, because, you, of course, there's no way we can fill up the measure. There's nothing lacking in Christ's sufferings. But there, but Christ, the fullness of Christ's sufferings are lacking in us. And I want to know him. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. If you don't suffer, you can't know him. And this kind of everything is about happiness and prosperity and goo goo gaga uh, is nonsense. If you don't taste little taste of his of his burden in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his burden was so deep that his his sweat turned to blood, which is a medical phenomenon that really happens, then then how can we know him? Well, the cloud, you know, goes all the way through to Revelation, and I wish I could just preach on that. Uh, then he talks about being passed through the sea and baptized into Moses, which gives way to water to John's baptism, which gives way to Christian baptism, which is symbolic of the fourth kind of baptism that is in the scriptures. And whenever I ask people what are the four types of baptism in the scriptures, they get two. Some get all oh, the the baptism uh, through the Red Sea and of in uh, in Moses was just a foreshadowing of Christ. But Jesus said, "Are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I'm going to be baptized?" Water baptism is your covenant commitment uh, experience to 
to make covenant with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and to be assured that he's going to be good enough to you to, to allow you to fellowship the baptism of his sufferings. Awesome stuff. You know, when they were bat when they went through the Red Sea, after the sea was restored, and of course, the, uh, of course I left out Joshua's baptism when they went through the then the Jer you know the waters of Jericho piled up, and they went through the across the I mean the Jordan River across from Jericho, and uh, boy, I'm stumbling all over my words this morning. You know, think of this: Pharaoh, symbolic of Satan, his his. The, his army, symbolic of all the demons and things that torment us in life. Uh, Pharaoh himself, the figurehead of Egypt, symbolic of the world system. All of that was drowned in the waters of baptism. And we have a better covenant. So many Christians I know that have been water baptized are not living their water baptism. And I don't care... Um, we uh, have about two and a half elders believe in infinite baptism and <laughs> infant baptism, infinite baptism. <laughs> That's a new doctrine. It's a, a kind of a good idea. Uh, <laughs> man, I can't speak this morning. And, um, and uh, you know, I don't care about whether, what you, whether your beliefs are believer's baptism or infant baptism. What I care about is that you realize the fullness of what that's about. Live your baptism. Are you dead to the world? Are you dead to Pharaoh? Are you dead to Egypt? Have you, have you risen up and as a Christian claimed your right to be delivered from demons and, and, and gotten some help and gotten delivered from the demons that, should, that need to be left on the other side? Are you still tormented by angers and unforgivenesses and hardness of heart and bitterness and lust and, and addictions and so forth. Jesus, your baptism is all about that Jesus came to set you free from all of it. You know, are you addicted to cigarettes or Coca-Cola or, or French fries or uh, sex or pornography or fears or apathy uh, these are some of the things that are that, that, that destroy people's lives. I know some people who are just being destroyed by their passivity and their apathy. Their whole life is being wasted because they can't get excited about Jesus at all. And, you know, we have a better covenant than they did. That's what he's saying. And then they uh, goes on to say in the cloud and in the sea, uh, spirit. Then they they uh, all ate the spiritual food, which the spiritual drink, which is manna, which is foreshadowing of of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus in John six interprets the manna as him. He's the bread that came down from heaven. And the and the scripture says Christ was the spiritual drink. He Christ the, was the, the rock. Was, they drank from a rock, and the rock was Christ. So believe me, it, you can't understand. Conversion, salvation, sanctification without reading the book of Exodus. Because all of it is symbolism and imagery for what happened to you. 
and what you're supposed to experience and what we're, by the way, it wasn't an individualistic salvation like we have today. They didn't make Jesus their personal savior. They joined the army of God. And that, you know, you go through the waters of baptism together. You don't have a baptism service by yourself. I baptize myself in the name of Jesus. <laughs> or what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, I wouldn't even be able to do it. I don't have any hair to pull down. But, uh, you know, you do it in the church. And you're not joining a specific church necessarily when you get water baptized, but you are joining the cosmic church of every Christian who's ever known the name of Christ. And you have an obligation from that point to, to not keep, keep pleasing the world and to, to be a part of an army of people who have died for the faith and been sawn in two for the faith and, and have been rejected by their own natural families for the faith. It's interesting that no, I've never heard anybody mention this, but John 6 is followed by John 7. Wow, that's deep, isn't it? Uh, get the real insights here. But Jesus in John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, would, uh, foreshadows the whole thing of Pentecost, when he stands up at the feast and says, this is what the meaning of it is. If any, this is the, what the feast is, the foreshadowing of of the feast is if anyone's thirsty let him come to me and drink he who drinks of me will never thirst again now he doesn't mean you won't be thirsty again it means you'll never be thirsty for anyone else again we have so many thirst for this world's things i pray that you would drink of christ so much that you would know in the hour of your temptations that I don't want to drink of that which will take me away from drinking of Christ for even one hour because I need, uh, you know, I need to drink. I had a drinking problem. I uh, when There's a thing called type 2 diabetes, and I technically have that, although I don't have to take any medications for it because I control it by my diet and so forth. But when I don't, one of the symptoms is you get uncontrollably thirsty for water. And I can drink like two, three gallons of ice water in a day if my sugar were high. And uh, I pray that you'll get like that for Christ. It's not that you're not thirsty, but that you just know that I don't want to drink anything else. And when you, you know that you can't drink anything except cold water, you don't want anything that causes diabetes like pop or some crap like that you you won't drink you won't drink of the foul stuff anymore because you only want the clean pure water of christ john 6 unless you eat my flesh is followed by john 7 you need to drink of my spirit and he's for he's specifically talking about having an experience that came in acts 2 pentecost and if you, if you understood all the feast in the context of where he's saying it, you'd know that he's talking about Pentecost. And it even says the Spirit wasn't given yet because he wasn't yet glorified. It's pretty clear. Well, uh, they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, if that doesn't speak to you, I don't know what does. I uh, personally, 
have taken way too long to get through the different wildernesses that God had for me. And that's not that they're all done or, or anything like that. <laughs> There's a few ahead. Uh, but I would say that by the grace of God, grace kind of grows and, and accumulates and, and becomes snowballing. And I hope that you will grow less and less in love with the idols of this world and more and more uh, filled with Christ. Turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would that we would not be laid low in the wilderness. One of the things that you need to learn, the last point there is the death of the first generation. This is my last point on this, and then I'm going to somehow summarize the uh, last point there. I was only going to point preach the next part, part uh, point three anyway. So listen to this. This is important. The meaning of the fact that God took a, a people out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land, the first generation failed in the wilderness, and no one can get through the wilderness except Joshua, Jesus, The, the reason they failed was because no one gets through the wilderness unless they die and are born again. Guess what? None of your old nature is going with you to Canaan land. Not a single lust, selfish ambition, bitterness that you're hanging on to, unforgiveness, uh, or anything else that is, uh, that is not... Uh, the zeal of the glory of God, he's going to kill it. And you can either prolong that or you can cry out to God to, to recognize the temptations and take advantage of every temptation as an opportunity. And you can grow faster or slower and you can cooperate with the grace of God less or more. And the, the answer is not just to be tougher and try harder. It's to humble yourself and cry out to God more and to walk in the power of his grace. But your, your old nature, none of it's going forward. You're going to be completely dead, and a new John Weiss is going to enter the land. The new parrot, Terry Pellegrino, is the only one who's going into the land. That's pretty exciting stuff, if you think of it. Well, there's four mindsets. I was only going to look at number C, because... Uh, uh, if you can see in your notes, uh, Covenant Theology, we, I gave you a, a link to the podcast there that we've already talked about that in the Kingdom of God series. Three ways to see Jesus. I put a link there because that was the last two Sundays. And uh, you really need to hear those messages uh, to enjoy your Old Testament. Today, I was going to look at biblical imagery a whole lot more. Uh, Obviously, I just gave us some good examples of it. Um, I'm just going to do this with the remaining time is recommend this book. If you want to follow this subject a little bit more, you can cheat ahead by reading chapter two of the book called Paradise Restored by David Chilton, which uh, there are some books that need to be uh, just an article. And then there are other books that it, more than half of the book or three quarters of the book really need to be a book. And this is one of those books that needs to be a book. And uh, so... David Chilton will get you started, but he's he's trying to cover what this guy's saying in his whole book in one chapter. Uh, but 
you do need to learn how to, to read symbolism in word pictures in through the Bible. And this is a great start on it. The book is in, listed in your notes there under point C, Through New Eyes, Developing a Biblical View of the World by James B. Jordan. Uh, John recently read this book and loved it. Right. Is that correct? And this is a book that was highly recommended some years ago. If any of you uh, are fans of Wayne McNamara, it's one of his three or four favorite books. Um, so Jesus, an example of the, of the symbolism in Matthew 16, when they, the Pharisees say, show us a sign from heaven, he basically says, I've already shown you signs from the scriptures. And you know how to read the signs of the weather, but you don't know how to read the signs of the Bible. He's talking to the, the, big, the best Bible scholars of his day. And he, says, he basically says, you don't need to know how to read the Bible, because if you don't know how to read biblical symbolism and imagery, then you don't know how to read the Bible. That's what he's basically saying in those quotes from Matthew 16 and Luke 11. Okay, Read them for yourself and see that. And he's saying Jonah is an example of that symbolism. Okay, Israel, uh, the whole life of Israel was typified by the prophet Jonah. Israel was supposed to be for the redemption of the nations, and Israel hated the nations. And when God called Jonah to preach to the Ninevites, the wicked city of Nineveh, which had, uh, is, you know, is Babylon, it's, it's, it's one of the great cities of the Bible, uh, study Nineveh in the Bible. Uh, the ESV study Bible has a little article about Nineveh that's really good. Uh, the start of, not to be at the start of Jonah, I don't know, uh, somewhere. Um, Jonah just, Jonah really, he does, he, you know what, he's, he's afraid they're going to hear the message and repent. Now, the likelihood of that was crazy low. From a naturalistic point of view, that's about as likely as if uh, Anvesh and Larry go downtown and start preaching on the streets, thinking that businessmen and, and drunkards and everybody else are going to come and kneel down and start repenting. Well, that's exactly what happened. Nineveh was, was the height of wickedness. It was San Francisco, Miami, Las Vegas, uh, New Orleans, all rolled into one. And uh, you know what? They repented. They even made the animals go on a fast. And Jonah wasn't happy about it. But Jesus says, as Jonah was three days in the earth, so the Son of Man will be. And he's, he's going to succeed where Jonah failed. His gospel, when he rises, when he comes out of the whale's belly, the gospel is going to be preached to all the Ninevehs of the world. And, and all the Ninevehs of the world are going to repent and receive his kingdom. Well, uh, I... I'll give you one more because I got two minutes. Lampstands. Now, that's one of my favorite ones. Jesus in Matthew 5, every, we, every little Sunday schooler knows, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And, you know, and there's gospel choirs that do really. Uh, Jesus said that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but he puts it on a lampstand. What the heck does that mean? Well, if you were a reader of biblical symbolism, you'd know right away. Revelation 1, 
talks about Jesus who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and the golden lampstands are the churches. A lampstand's a place where you put lots of lamps because you can't really see that much from one lamp. I, I have a L-shaped bathroom upstairs that Ray Nethery uses when he comes, and so we put two night lights on one end of the bathroom, and we light two candles on the other end of the bathroom uh, because one candle's just not light enough at his age. And uh, one way we just serve him is we put two candles on the back of the toilet so he can have lots of light because one is not enough. And the message of lampstands is simply this. One light is nothing, unless it's the light of Christ. But together, we make lampstands. And that's why when Moses was given all the instructions in Exodus about the tabernacle, I have lots of the references listed there for you, um, he, they, there were, they were had to be made of pure gold, and they had exact specifications and what, he, what God is saying over and over and over is there's going to be a tendency among my people, old covenant and new, to do religion their way, to do the church my way, to invent new modern marketing ideas of how to do the pattern. And you can't do that. And if there's anything that characterizes the church, uh, especially since the 1980s, it's almost like it's gone on steroids or locked into hyperspace. The church of our day is built on the ideas of men. The structures, the buildings, the liturgy, the, the goals, everything is man applying American radical individualism and American marketing. And the whole seeker-sensitive thing is basically just this big ball of unbelief that says, we don't think Jesus and the gospel and the Holy Spirit and the word of God has any power. So we're going to go live where they live and live how they live and talk to them how they talk. And that won't get you crucified, but it won't get them crucified either. It's a most unloving thing to do. And if you read biblical symbolism, you'll know that because you'll know that everything has to be made according to God's pattern, not man's. Amen.